we're on the air. Good morning, and welcome to the Book Cult Podcast. This is a strange special edition where we're going to have an open discussion about a book from class. My name is Adrian Galvin. I'm Gary Agarwal. I'm Tiffany Lee. None of us are philosophers. That's, that's good to know. Um, so I think, Gary, you're going to tell us about the author and context of this book. Yep. So Alan Lightman, who is the author of Einstein's Dream, he was a writer, he is a writer and physicist, and he's also a current professor of the practice of humanities at MIT. That's fancy. Um, what's interesting about him is he's very interested, or he's deeply inspired by both the sciences and the arts. Indeed. And he was also the first person to receive a dual faculty appointment in sciences and humanities at MIT and Harvard. That's cool. I like yep. that. I didn't know that. So the book we're talking about today, Einstein's Dreams, uh, it fictionalizes a young Albert Einstein who's working on his theory of relativity, relativity in 1905. It contains 30 chapters, each describing a conception of time and the relationship each human being has to this time. And these chapters are presented as dreams that Einstein has. And uh, the book also includes a couple interludes with his interactions with his friends. Right. So it just says on the script that I'm supposed to describe why we're doing this. <laughs> and honestly, I'm not totally sure. <laughs> Basically, we're in this class that I don't fully understand. It's really great. Um, it's a lot of fun. We talk about things. Theoretically, it's about AI, cities, and culture. But we've been assigned this book, which is kind of like a weird collage of different time states and the the reason i think molly assigned this to us <laughs> is that it um it ends up being a sort of encapsulation of little worlds that have different value structures like different and very distinct value structures based on how um time almost as a technology shapes their world and so I think it's, it's a little abstract and it's a little kind of like far away from what I would expect, but it's, it is really interesting because the, <clears throat> the most distinctive or important thing about technology is how it structures our everyday life or enables people or disables people. And I think this is kind of an artistic exploration of how things can do that. So we're going to start off the podcast by just talking about um, some of our favorite dreams. So the book is kind of structured around these like one to two page interludes, um, which describe a possible world. And I'm going to talk to you about one, if I can actually find it. Oh God, I'm so disorganized, I'm the worst. No. All right, here we go. So this is the 29th of May, uh, 1905. A man or woman, whoa, a man or woman suddenly thrust into this world would have to dodge houses and buildings, for all is in motion. Houses and apartments mounted on wheels go careening through the Bahnhof plots and race through the narrows of market gas. Their occupants shouting from second-story windows. <clears throat> So this one goes on a whole bunch, uh, and what you find out is that everything has to move, because if you move, then you uh, get more time. So they're kind of like leveraging the principle of time dilation. Of course, it's uh, fictionalized, because you don't really gain that much by moving quickly, but 
it's a story. <laughs> um, and, and I really like this one just because I like lots of kinetic moving things and it sounds exciting. And a lot of the other ones are actually super depressing. <laughs> this one kind of is too, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because they're, the, so they're the people in this world that um, sort of buy into this whole thing and they get a house that moves fast and they go to a job where everything moves fast and they really, really try hard. And then there are other people that just like close all the shades on their house and they just forget the whole world. <laughs> um, and I think something about that is really descriptive of the human condition that some, some people choose to buy into the like high speed technology. How do I get the most out of life? Whereas others sort of try to push everything away. Um, I do think in this book, he tries to build these dichotomies. It's like this sort of person does this thing and this sort of person does exactly the opposite. But I sort of feel like, um, you can do both and you can sort of choose to move in between those two poles in your life. I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, I thought it was interesting because especially this chapter really brought out some of the human emotions of jealousy mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, competitiveness mm -hmm. and things like that, especially with people just putting their blinds down right. on other people because of the relative motion between the two. Mm -hmm. I thought that part was really interesting. Um, yeah, there was yeah. a really interesting passage related to that. Um, each sees the other gaining time. This recipro reciprocity is maddening. More maddening still, the faster one travels past the neighbor, the faster the neighbor appears to be traveling. So I thought it was really interesting how they framed that relatively in terms of human relations and how um, that buys into the jealousy thing that Gary and both that both Gary and Adrian mentioned. Yeah, I thought that that press. I had forgotten about that, but that's a really good point that even the people who are buying into moving as fast as possible, just the nature of the world always makes them feel like they need more because mm -hmm. their own speed as they achieve success forces them to see everyone else as succeeding more. Um, yeah, I think there's something really rich there. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a, a adding on to that, success is like a perception, right? So mm -hmm. the more you succeed, the more you want to succeed. So there's like right. no limit to it. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess that's what also yeah it's like so what's that ties into the, what's that mathematical curve where it like always approaches zero bounding then, curve i don't know what you're talking but about but there, there's like a curve where it always it infinitely approaches zero and never gets there uh logarithmic curve that's yeah. that. it sounds terrible <laughs> yeah there's a curve like that <laughs> okay well should we uh move on to slipping back in time all right hey, that one was one that i highlighted and that was for the 16th of April, 1905. Let me go ahead and find that. Right. So the reason I mentioned this dream, honestly, this, might, this probably should have fit in the worst dreams because I had more gripes with it than I did um, likes. <laughs> but, That's fantastic. But the um, number one thing that this really brought up for me is how this book seems to be more interested in breadth across time instead of breadth across space. So this chapter describes um, people who accidentally slip back in time and are like time travelers. And these time travelers end up as shadowy beings who cower in the corners because they're too afraid to change some aspect of time that will you know, shift the future that they belong in. And um, there's a cultural reaction to this that's described in this chapter where they are not questioned about coming events, about future marriages, births, finances, inventions, profits to be made. Instead, they are left alone and pitied. That's a quote, by the way. 
And um, that seems like a very specific and cultural reaction that I feel like is odd for how much this book tends to generalize the human nature or the human human reactions to different things. So I thought it was interesting how for something that's such a thought experiment on human nature, it really tends to generalize what I consider to be human nature. Right. Yeah, I think that that image actually stands out to me from this book too, um, of those people who are so completely isolated and yet they have such a well-known place in society. It's like an agreed upon isolation. Yeah. And I agree, he went into more detail about that, I think, than he did in other places. It's a little strange. Mm -hmm. I thought this paragraph is extremely interesting, especially about like the whole time travelers thing and they're trying not to disturb the future and people not asking them stuff because if it, yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, culturally that could be a very big generalization. Um, I was also curious as to what happens if the time traveler actually displaces mm -hmm. something in the past. I would have liked him to explore more of that mm -hmm. um, in the passage. Yeah, I, I just realized, like, I feel like uh, the Hollywood kind of time conception thing of, like, time traveling is, like, sexy adventure, <laughs> and you're, like, going to change the world. Right. But this was, I've never heard it be... So described that way yeah well it's amazing because they're just they're in this like self-crushing terror about like changing anything right. which i feel like is actually more realistic like yeah. if i had to not change anything at all i would just be horrified cowering in a door um but it's interesting that it's so accurate but also so much the opposite of what you would hear in a pop culture conception that's true mm -hmm. okay so i guess we can talk about Time as a quality, not a quantity, next, which is on 10th June 1905. Great. Um, I thought this was interesting because, um, and this theme is highlighted across many, many chapters in this book, is this concept of um, taking it easy, like not, um, you know, uh, allowing time to pressurize you to do something, rather follow your time um, as as you perceive time to be right. and um, I think this uh, this chapter really brought that out and it says here um, quite a few times that suppose that time is not a quantity but a quality like the luminescence of the night above the trees just when a rising moon has touched the tree line time exists but it cannot be measured mm. um, and I find the a concept of not measurable time really interesting in this book which and comes up a lot um, and I feel like uh, that also has some cultural uh, nuances that some people do feel like you know time is pressurizing them and they mm. need to do things on time and you know they have to be on time but some others just um, take it easy you know right there's a really interesting um, passage in this stream uh, some people attempt to quantify time, to parse time, to dissect time. They are turned to stone. 
And that was really interesting to me because that was the first time I saw in any of these dreams that there was a um, very defined and very immediate consequence for questioning um, the present almost. Like that's a theme that pops out throughout the book, generally just focus on the present, live your life in the present. But this is the, the first dream I saw that kind of really, really emphasizes that with consequences. Yeah, it would definitely be turn to stone immediately <laughs> in this world. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm obsessed with time as a measured quality. Um, but it's interesting because I feel like he has a really strong opinion. Like, like Lightman often presents this dichotomy between people who measure time and are very like disciplined about when things start and then people who don't really view it as a measurable quantity and they just do things on their own schedule. Um, but I feel like he really comes down hard on the like free time thing. Because yeah. <laughs> um, he always portrays those people as like being happier. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I just found that bias interesting. Oh, yeah, that's definitely felt a bit like an agenda. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I like the agenda. That's awesome. Um, are we going to talk about the sense of time, fifth June? Yeah, so very similar to time is quality and not quantity. This is from 5th June 1905. Cool. Um, I guess the most interesting aspect of uh, this particular chapter was how, how real to life it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's about some, uh, so one of the codes says, some few are born without any sense of time. As consequence, their sense of place becomes heightened to excruciating degree. And others, while others just, you know, perceive time in a different way. Some think that the same situation is moving quickly for them, mm. whereas others perceive it to be a slow-paced situation. So I feel like it's interesting to see how different scenarios can be perceived in two different ways by different people. Um, and I think it ends with, like, a lot of questions. Uh, this particular chapter as to what is right, you know, who's right, yeah. who's doing it correctly. Yeah, Which they presented I, the time-deaf people who yeah. are immune to this relative um, perception of time, mm -hmm. and they're kind of put on a pedestal, but right. ironically, they're kind of unapproachable for answers, right. which I think might be an interesting metaphor for our current desire for the absolute or like the certain. Mm -hmm. This is semi-random, but this made me think of people who are like conversationally tone deaf. Conversationally tone deaf. Do you ever have this experience where like someone just does not perceive any of the normal conversational cues? And so you have to like be embarrassingly explicit about like how you want the conversation to go. And it's not exactly the same, but it just made me think of that thing where you like you don't realize how subtle and like how many signals you're giving off about something. And in the same way, I feel like there's, yeah, they talk about like time deafness. Right. And so I just imagine like, how would you deal with someone when all of your assumptions about how something as fundamental as time, they just don't pick any of them up and you're like, uh, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, should we talk about the worst dreams ever? I think we agree a lot on what the worst dreams are. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, good. I'll start us off here with the world of 
3 May 1905, and the first sentence sums this up pretty well. Consider a world in which cause and effect are erratic. Yeah, so that sucks. <laughs> yeah, I read this, and it just made me so sad. He gives this story of, like, someone who's lived the most virtuous life for, like, the past 20 years. He's been good to his friends, he's been good to his family, and they all betray him, and his life all falls apart. And then he becomes a terrible person, and Lightman's like, oh, is it because he was a terrible person? Or because there's no cause and effect? Because he will be a terrible person. <laughs> and I'm like, while that's intellectually interesting, that sucks. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess it made me realize that I have this really fundamental... Uh, almost like scientists' assumption that everything has a cause. We may not be able to perceive it. We might need better instruments than we have, or we might need better thinking than we have, or a lot of different things, but everything is fundamentally understandable eventually. Um, and this chapter really revealed that for me, because imagining a world where cause and effect are not tightly linked sounds like the worst place mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, this uh, dream also bothered me because the reactions of the people seemed pretty contrived. Uh, for example, there was a quote where uh, most people have learned how to live in the moment. And that just sort of struck me because I feel like that's not what would happen at all. Like the, uh, the idea is that this um, lack of correlation between cause and effect causes people to not care about cause and effect at all and just live in the present. but. That doesn't that doesn't necessarily hold because you can still read into. I feel like that would make you read more into events if cause and effect are broken than if they were linked. You know. Also, it would lead you not to be your best self in your yeah. present because right. you're not bothered about uh, how that might affect your future, mm -hmm. which was also really interesting. It comes out a lot in the book too about like yeah. you know there's no cause and effect or there's no consequences for your actions yeah. which which seems right. wrong because all we've been taught is you know life is a full of life, life is full of choices and you need right. to make the right choice at the right moment mm -hmm. yeah. things like that so it seemed very counterintuitive yeah yeah, I feel like this is the first place where like his agenda kind of really sprang out to me <laughs> yeah, like, for in sure. the face. Because he goes to this place of like, everyone's enjoying this beautiful world <laughs> in the moment and they just kiss everyone they want to kiss because, you know, you cause don't know what they're right? It's no just, cause and I feel like in his imagination, when you throw away all the rules, everyone just becomes this like angelic free person living in the moment. And I feel like that's not what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that one just kind of, that really hurt my scientific brain a lot. Yeah. Your scientific brain. Um, yeah, the next one is perhaps the end of the world question mark. Ooh, doomsday. I called it yeah, doomsday. Yeah, good times there. So this is a world where somehow everybody knows that the world is going to end. <laughs> And they all kind of like give up their normal jobs, they stop working, and then when it's a month out, uh, all the like government services end, and they all, everyone in the town kind of like gathers to a church, and they all stand in a circle and hold hands and have this beautiful vision together. Um, yeah, and I feel like again, this is a place where uh, his basic assumption is that everyone will become this sort of like loving and delightful person. And this is on the last day before the world ends. One day before the end, the streets swirl in laughter. Neighbors who have never spoken greet each other as friends, strip off their clothing and bathe in the fountains. 
Others dive in the Arn. After swimming until exhausted, they lay in the thick grass along the river and read poetry. So yeah, it, it turns into this like odd utopian paradise because the world is going to end. Mm -hmm. And for some reason that just seems fully implausible to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Did you guys have a similar experience? Uh, there was a uh, passage right before the one you just read. They do not seem to mind that the world will end soon because everyone shares the same fate. A world with one month is a world of equality. On Kindle, that was one of the most highlighted. <laughs> that was one of the most highlighted passages, which is why I highlighted it too. But um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, the idea of a shared fate. Uh, as an equalizer, which again might tie into Adrian's gripe that this is too idealized, but I thought it was an interesting thing to think about. In comparison to the other chapters, though, some of the other chapters in this book, I definitely did not think that this was the most, um, or this was disturbing yeah. for some reason that the equality thing huh. made sense to me. Yeah, interesting. Um, honestly, same. Yeah, because you know how. If you're doing bad in a test, but your friend's also doing bad in a test, you kind of like... <laughs> you're in this like, space where you're not feeling so bad about yourself. That's amazing. I love this metaphor. <laughs> so, so I feel like this could be applied here where, you know, everyone's going to die, so might as well enjoy the last moments we have together. Right. So it didn't feel as, like, doomsday-ish. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a good reading. And I had this experience this semester, just like failing <laughs> all of the computer science quizzes. But I had friends who were also <laughs> so somehow it was okay. So I, I relate to that. Yeah, I also feel like um, part of the reason why we're able to accept this uh, dream more so than, let's say, the cause and effect dream right. is because this idea, I think, is not new to us. It's been played a lot in popular media. The yeah. idea of the doomsday being some sort of equalizer, mm. some sort of liberator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, did we want to talk about life in one day? Oh, did I pick that? Okay. Yeah. It was on 3rd June, <laughs> 1905. Yeah, I like this one also. Oh, yeah. You liked it? I liked it too. I liked, I liked the idea well, of it. Yeah. I did not quite enjoy it for several reasons. Um, um, I think one of the reasons was just the fact that um, people don't get to experience so much in this world right. because it's just one day long. Right. Um, let me just go to that chapter <laughs> really quickly. Um, yeah, so it says, imagine a world in which people live just one day and time is too precious. A life is a moment in season, a life is one snowfall. A life is a brief moment of arms and of legs. It was kind of depressing to me because it made me realize that I'm not doing so much with my life. And that, I need to get, <laughs> that I need to get up and run and do something. So I guess it was inspiring, but in like a weird way where I just felt, bad. felt bad about myself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons I highlighted it as one of my worst dreams. Um, yeah, that's that's basically it. And also the portrayal of how people react when things change, like from sunrise to sunset. Yes. I thought that was extremely weird because people yes, who were born mm -hmm. in sunset enjoy outdoor activities yeah. versus um, people who were born 
in it's the other way like around. Around, uh, around oh yeah sunset enjoy more indoor activities yeah. my bad and then people who are born during sunrise right. go out and enjoy life yes. but they're not able to enjoy so much when it gets dark right so it just feels like half of your life is basically spent with you being obsessed over this thing that you cannot control yeah um which is out of your you know circumstance so it just felt like that could have been something that it, it didn't seem idealistic at all well it also just didn't seem like realistic i think yeah. there's a there's a fundamental adaptability that human beings have that he kind of misses actually in several of yeah. these stories yep. but yep. it really sticks out to me in this one because yeah. if you think about even like simple examples like uh, kids who went off to World War II, they adapted to, like, they adapted to, like, warfare, like, horrifying warfare within a month, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so human beings have this enormous capacity to deal with new and, frankly, terrible circumstances and still, like, rise to the occasion and be themselves. And so I feel like he kind of misreads people there by saying, you know, you spend, say, the first half of your life, so that's, say, 40-ish years doing this one thing, and then you're, you have to do your, the second part of your life in something that's totally contrasting. But, like, it's not that bad, right? It's just being inside and doing something intellectual instead of like being outside and doing something outdoorsy. It's not a huge change. Exactly. And so I think realistically humans would have no, they might be unhappy, but like you're not going to just break down because of that. Um, We've seen human beings survive much worse things in their lives easily. Yeah. That was actually uh, the part in this dream that I found most interesting. The idea of um, a person's characteristics being determined by the time of day they were born Hmm. and and that uh, reminds me a lot of, of horoscopes, you know? We have that idea <laughs> already, right. just in a bigger scale mm-hmm. across a year instead of a day, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. Um, I think it's also interesting how this percept, this uh, depiction of human life is really just, you know, a scale down of it. Yeah. Um, the idea that uh, the, the knowledge of seasons is passed down through the gen- generations the same way as other knowledge is passed down through our generations, you know? So. Right. Yeah, I never thought of that's a good point. Like, why don't they know? They do know. It says. They do know. They, so it's they, passed down. Yeah. Yeah. The variety of seasons is learned about in books. Uh, right, but what I'm saying is, like, haven't there, if you're a night person and you're reaching your, like, sun time phase, you're about to break down, like, haven't there been lots of people who've gone through that before? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. shouldn't there be someone, who, like, your crazy uncle or something, be like, listen, dude, things are about to fall apart for you, but you can do it. Yeah, and why don't they make things like indoor swimming pools or something? Yeah, they just seem, like, fundamentally uncreative. <laughs> it's just a sad life. It's a sad it's story. A sad life. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, sticky time. Sticky time is also mine. Oh. Oh, it's from 10th May 1905. I had a lot of not favorites on this book. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> That's amazing. So, fire touching ice. Sticky time is basically this concept where like people get stuck in different parts of their life. Mm. Oh yeah. Um. So there's this lady who gets stuck um, in this uh, scene where she's writing a beautiful letter to her son to come back home 
and while he's outside knocking on the door for her to you know hear but then she is just stuck in time and she's writing this beautiful letter she goes back to sleep she does the same thing over and over again and she basically ignores her son for whom she's writing this long and loving letter um, kind of reminds me of how we sometimes um, in our lives miss the things that are most important to us because we're stuck in like this previous past phase mm -hmm. of our life and we're obsessing over something that we really should let go. Um, but also is depicted in a manner that, you know, made me very, very depressed. Just, just like stories like this in, within the text, well, which made me realize how important it is to, mm -hmm. you know, live in the moment, I guess. Did you feel the same way? Uh, yeah, um, I feel like uh, going back to what you said about how you can apply this to you know our current our our real life mm -hmm. is that a lot of these dreams are honestly just parables of like one aspect of life that Lightman really tries to emphasize whether it feels really agenda e and creepy or not. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I feel like this is a good example of um, something that's more of like a parable, like a story you tell to your children to teach them some life lessons. Um, this dream also has a quote that's been highlighted a lot of times by Kindle users, <laughs> so I'll go ahead and read that one. The tragedy of this world is that no one is happy, whether stuck in a time of pain or of joy. The tragedy of this world is that everyone is alone, for a life in the past cannot be shared with the present. Each person who gets stuck in time gets stuck alone. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> um, Very yeah, depressing. This one seemed extremely allegorical. Yeah. Like, whereas the other ones sometimes seem like worlds that, like, have a piece of, like, uh, a sort of political agenda stuck mm. into them or yeah. a point stuck into them. Mm -hmm. They still seem like explorable fantasy sci-fi worlds. Yeah. Whereas this one to me just feels like... A direct allegory. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's the situation when you get obsessed with something in your life and you never let it go and you fall apart. <laughs> like, that's what this is about. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, whereas it, it just seems very, like, straightforward that he's talking about yeah. us one psychological phenomenon, mm -hmm. right. um, which made it different from the other ones for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. The last least favorite dream there is no future. I believe that's also yours, Gari. <laughs> No, that's not mine. That's not yours? That's yours. Know. Oh shit, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we're prepared. <laughs> okay, right. All right, so uh, this stream is for the 11th of June, 1905. And the reason I mentioned this dream as a worst dream is because, honestly, this is just a repetition of another dream. This is a repetition of the no memories dream, where you're constantly living in the present. Mm -hmm. And it's just a rehashing of, you know, the theme of living in the present as opposed to any other time, mm. which is why I thought this dream in particular, which is towards the end of the book, felt really, really dull mm. and tiring. Yeah, it's strange. He does this thing where, like, like I think of a really shallow yoga classes. Yes. Really shallow yoga classes. <laughs> analogy, I get it. Like, I have never taken a really shallow yoga class. Well, I can tell you all about it. <laughs> Please um, elaborate. Yeah, I just think there's this thing we do in, the, in America and in the West in particular where 
we learn about something that's different from how we do stuff. Mm. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. Why don't we just obsessively act like that's the answer to everything? <laughs> yeah. And so I think the idea of presence has become like that. Um, that the idea that you can meditate and become more present and experience your thoughts as um, like consciousness experiencing thoughts rather than identifying with your mind. We've sort of like learned that that's a thing recently. Um, but I, I don't think it's the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. And I think he sort of, in, I don't know, I think he's stuck in the idea that it is. And I see this with a lot of people. Like they, they see a new concept that's super, super deep and interesting and they just uh, sort of like fetishize it as the mm -hmm. answer to everything. And I think there's a little bit of that happening here because yeah. every depiction of people being more present or less tied to mechanical time or, you know, like all of those things cash out in utopianism for him. Whereas I think they really don't like there's there's the possibility to become more present. There's the possibility to know yourself more and also to therefore short circuit negative emotions in your life. And we shouldn't underestimate the power of that, but it doesn't solve all problems. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, I think we're going to move on to a little thematic discussion, which should be fun. Mm -hmm. um, I think I actually wrote most of these. <laughs> uh, so the tragic and nostalgic sense of life. I think this is present in several of these stories. And um, I get it. I think it's, it's good that he points that out, but I, I feel like... I feel as though he characterizes our everyday lives as fundamentally shitty. <laughs> and that he also characterizes this sort of, as we were just discussing, the sort of way of presence and freedom as this sort of perfect utopianism. And I, I really don't think it's like that. Like, I think we can find joy in our in our semi-rigid and organized lives. Um, and I think we can find joy in the way that we're able to, for example, just throw this podcast together because we have an idea of like, okay, we need to be here at a certain time. We all know we need to have the script written before we get here. And we didn't do an excellent job of that, but like <laughs> we have a certain sense of how things should be organized. And there's a real beauty and joy in that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did you guys agree with that? Or yeah. Not really? Yeah, my biggest gripe with the book is just that it seems very one-dimensional one in yeah. both the message it's trying to present and its, and its understanding of, you know, how people react to these different situations. Like, this book is basically a series of thought experiments related to time, mm -hmm. but for thought experiments, they're not very deep. <laughs> there may be, like, breadth, but it, there's not much depth to them, I feel. Very gimmicky. Mm. I actually felt like, yeah, while it's true that, you know, there are sort of one dimensional and pointing to the same thing over and over again, I some, some of the dreams I really liked. Mm -hmm. Some of the dreams were about, you know, joyous moments in life, you know, finding someone you really like or, you know, uh, meeting your kids or things like mm -hmm. that, which really brought out, I think, some of the human emotions that we mm -hmm. feel mm -hmm. in everyday lives and also portrayed them to give more importance to them, mm -hmm. I felt. Right. So some of the dreams I really, really enjoyed reading. Yeah, it's interesting to see such a humanistic um, lens applied to time. But and physics. And physics, yeah. 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 But I feel like the problem there is that um, that humanistic view can be done 
poorly, which I feel like Lightman hasn't really done to the best extent, if that makes sense. That's fair. Yeah, I just wish there was more complexity, mm. right? There's this, yeah. um, there's this Japanese animation director named Hayao Miyazaki mm. from Ghibli. And what I love about him is that his evil, quote, characters are actually super, super rich, interesting people. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the story, you really sympathize with them and you see why they are that way. And you don't see them as evil. You see them as just, I don't know, like they've been led to this place. Mm -hmm. And the good characters are never these sort of like pure goods. They're, they have complexity to them and they have ugly moments and you don't read them as like angelic. They're just people. And I think this is missing some of that or like, I, yeah, like you said, there's a, there's a great breadth and you get to see a lot of little vignettes, but somehow they always cash out to this like simple dualistic thing. Yeah. Um, and I wish there was more of the sophistication that I see in reality reflected in the book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which leads me, I think, to the next point that I want to talk about, which is suspension of disbelief. And I don't think we need to go too deeply into this because we just covered some of it. But I think for me, it was hard by about halfway through the book, it was hard to really like sink into each one of these universes yeah. because I felt like I knew where it was going. I felt like he always came to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be like, oh, this is a funky world. That's cool. But I know where we're going. <laughs> and so I, I began to lose interest. I think the, I think providing something that had more realistic sophistication would help me enjoy the breadth of his universe because there are really fascinating and beautiful things in it. Mm -hmm. What do you think? There was definitely... Yeah, it would it would be nice to see both points of view highlighted. Like mm. there is always this one, uh, you know, point of view which said people who follow bodily time are ones who are happier in life, mm. and people who follow mechanical time are not, and things like that. The, these things got repetitive in the end, right. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like maybe there could be like a mismatch like sometimes one of them wins but sometimes the other one wins right which could have made like this more a little more unpredictable and interesting to read yeah i think part of our um disenchantment with this is also due to the fact that the book hasn't aged that well i believe since it was published in like 1993 and now we're in 2018 and i think a lot of our media like a lot of what we are conditioned to expect from media that we consume is, you know, is so um, ambiguity. Right. And this uh, does not have that ambiguity that we want. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Actually, I hadn't thought about that at all. I mm -hmm. think the, the observation that in the early 90s, probably the magic of all of these worlds was more palpable to yes. them. Right? And so they... You know, they didn't have access to this sort of media that could transport you to any universe easily mm. and immediately. Yeah. And so probably people read those things as more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, that's a good point. I think it is, yeah, time has not necessarily been kind to this book, which is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, yeah, I think we covered living in the present 
Mm -hmm. uh, it says structure of most people, but some people. Yes, that was my <laughs> theme. It's just that pretty much all the dreams in this book are structured in a way where they present like the majority of people doing one thing uh, in this uniform in this universe, and then a small minority of people who does this other thing in the universe, and then it brings up the question of which one is right? These two people live differently to different consequences. <coughs> hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> Very contrived and very uh, binary. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you agree? I agree. I completely agree. Mm. I, I was having a thought this weekend. Somebody came to visit me from California who I haven't seen in a long time. And uh, I have a lot of exams and projects and stuff, which I'm sure you do. And my, my daily schedule is like terrifyingly planned. Like I have an entire whiteboard with like every day, everything that's due, every hour of the day that I'm, what I'm going to work on, and then the whole list of things I'm supposed to accomplish. It's like insane. My, my time is scheduled down to like the minute. But I, this weekend I knew I wanted to spend time with this person. And so I just made a block of time and I said, I don't care what happens within this. And we just went for a walk at like 8 p.m ish and neither of us took our phones we just didn't know what time it was and so we just walked around we had hot chocolate and we like looked at the moon or whatever so i just think it's it's possible to do both right you just it just it takes some thinking and it takes some flexibility and that's the thing that just sort of jarred with me is the rec like the lack of recognition that people can be more complex than mm -hmm. just one side of a dichotomy I saw that in the leader is a now example too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I was like, I'm neither as a leader as someone um, in the universe that time is infinite or you have basically infinite lives. Mm. Um, leaders are someone who just um, put everything off to the last minute and now there's people who do things at the, pre like do as many things as possible uh, because they know that they're going to live forever. Mm. Um, and I definitely felt like I am neither a leader nor an hour. I can I can do both. I can be both. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because I, rem I remember that moment from our class discussion. Mm -hmm. And I remember so many people just having this like frustrated look on their faces. And, yeah. and just like, yeah, I just think it's frustrating to be forced mm. into a like uh, sort of dichotomous mm, choice, yeah. right? That you're like, you have to be this or you have to be this. Mm -hmm. and. Nobody likes that. Yeah. I think that's Seg's, uh, or Seg's segue. I think that goes <laughs> nicely. <laughs> I think that goes that's nicely. <laughs> I, I think that goes nicely into the next theme we have on the list, which is uh, mechanistic versus bodily time. Mm -hmm. um, we discussed this in class, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of time being defined as absolutes as like clockwork versus time being defined as more intuitive and more how you feel. And we also talked about this on the bus, about the cultural differences between how we per each perceive time. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that was, that was on my post-it note for this particular uh, vignette is our discussion about how culturally time is different mm. and how when these two times meet, there's a paragraph in the book which says, when the two times meet, there's disruption. And when the two times go their own ways, then everything's fine. 
which also seemed a little bit extreme. <laughs> maybe true, maybe not. I don't know. Right. But um, definitely reminded me of how culturally it's very, very different. And to generalize it in the, in the manner that's done in the book is probably not the only way to think about this. Yeah. Well, I also have this, I have this problem with this conception, right? So someone will be like, culturally, I just don't do rigid time. And I'm like, well, viscerally, it's going to freak me out if we don't. <laughs> and like those two things don't really match up. But I also still get along with everyone who has a culturally different conception of time, right? And so I think there's a way in which the past can become an excuse, right? That you're like, oh, I just don't do that. But you could. Right? Like why, like you can change and you can find a negotiated medium with someone if you're willing to work with them. Um, yeah, and so that was a thing that I just felt was missing. Yeah, I did, I did come on time this time. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I was on time. <laughs> this is probably going away from theme, themes and diving more into specifics, but there's this passage in this, um, this dream in particular, and if the body speaks, it is speaking only of so many lovers and forces. The body is a thing to be ordered, not obeyed, which I thought was really kind of off, especially in context of this passage, of this dream, because um, we have mechanical time because the body functions the best on routine, if that makes sense. Like, it's not like they're mutually exclusive. In fact, I'd argue that mechanical time is a cultural um, expectation because it, um, it, it results from, you know, the human, the human body and not the other way around. It's not like something that oppresses the human body, I'd say. Right. I, I kind of agree with this. Now, I'm super biased because I'm like the most obnoxiously time-oriented person <laughs> probably here. Um, but, you know, I think there's a reason civilization has moved in this. Now, it's a huge generalization, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But part of the reason time, the mechanical conception of time as an instrument, like mm -hmm. an abstract instrument for human action has become prevalent is because it works, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> it works really well if you have a time-oriented, like disciplined group of people competing with one who's not, for example. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's important to acknowledge that there's something empirical about that, mm -hmm. right? That it's functional. Um, and again, I think you can still argue for like uh, structure, like uh, mm, intentionally unstructured time, right? Like I can be really committed to being on time and say for the next 48 hours, I'm just going to be on time for nothing and do whatever I want, <laughs> right? Like we, we can travel back and forth between these two things. I uh, sort of agree, <laughs> sort of disagree. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to go about this because I feel like discipline, like you mentioned, yeah. um, could be a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be time. Totally and right. it also depends on who you're working with, like you mentioned, right? So you could be disciplined, um, but you could not be on time at the same time, mm -hmm. I feel. But I also agree with the fact that the body follows a routine, and that routine is best um, realized with the mechanical clock. I right. agree with that fact. Yes, I do. So I'm like in between. I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. 
Well, a good place to go <laughs> could be into rating this book. <laughs> so we have a grand tradition on the podcast of rating all books, and you only get whole numbers. So on a scale of zero to five, what do you think about this book? And I was, justify. <laughs> okay. Um, I was at three, maybe. Mm. Um, Again, because I liked some of the chapters a lot. I liked the fact that it was somewhat tied in the theory of relativity. Mm. So there was physics elements, there was elements of time dimensionality, which I thought was really interesting, away from like regular fiction books, I would say. Uh, the reason why I'm not giving it the last two points is probably because, um, like we mentioned in the themes many, many times, is that it's very one-dimensional and doesn't really express like maybe all the views that are possible. So yeah, I think my rating's three out of five. My rating would also be a three out of five for mostly the same reasons. I think this book is very valuable as a collection of thought experiments, but these thought experiments could have been um, executed um, in a more thoughtful and diverse way, especially since um, Lightman is taking such a humanistic view on such a scientific concept. Um, yeah, mm. same reasons. Yeah, I'm gonna give this book a two out of five. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like, I love the idea of this book, and I don't like the book itself. Mm. If, if like William Gibson who wrote Neuromancer could rewrite all these stories with the like poetic insanity that he has, I think it would be incredible. I just think Lightman's kind of a dry and unimaginative writer, mm. although his ideas are fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's where it is. Any uh, closing thoughts? Nope. All right, <laughs> it's been great. Well, I'm still, slightly confused as to why we're here but it's been a lot of fun thanks for talking about this book with me and we'll see you all later